Welcome to the life of Christ. This is lesson 13. I want to go back to page 8, which begins all of this. Let's begin reading um, in Matthew 3, 4. In fact, that's on page 9. We're looking at John, the man, and his message. And it says there in Matthew 3 and verse 4, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from this wrath to come? Okay, it's, <laughs> let's pick it up there, because that's kind of where we left off, just, just after that. Alright, so John knew what was in these people's hearts. He had seen the corruption. Remember again that I said that he separated himself from the temple? Now this was a child of a priest, okay, and came from priestly stock, both sides of the family. And yet John separated himself from all of that. And you find him out in the desert preaching and baptizing and doing all that stuff. So you can already see that he has put distance between himself and the religious organization and the religious institutions at the time. Can you all see that? Okay, I need you to see that. And so, when they come to him, obviously, you know, I don't know, and here's a little conjecture. I wonder if John started to preach some of the things that he wanted to preach in some of the synagogues, and they said, ah, yeah, let's not invite him here again. You know, because of the things that he says, he's so straight. Okay, and I'm sure John, being the person that he is, didn't care about authority. We know that about Herod, right? And so, you know, he would have got up there and the preacher would have thought, Oh, good, John's here and, you know, he attracts crowds. And so he gets up and he starts saying, You know, the problem here is not the people, it's the leadership. And everybody goes, Oh, no, who invited him? And let's never invite him again. Because it was. When you see the people that rebelled against John and Jesus... It wasn't necessarily the people. They followed them in droves. It was the religious leaders that kept instigating all sorts of things and getting people to turn on them. Are you all with me? Even at the trial of Jesus Christ, you find that it's the religious leaders that started that thing going. And said, crucify him. And so, we begin to realize now that by the time John and Jesus came on the scene, the religious leaders were corrupt. So you can just imagine, and again, I'm taking a little bit of license here, but you can just imagine if John started ministering in one of their synagogues, he would have laid waste to the whole leadership there. They would have not come out looking good. Amen. Alright? Just by association. Because, you know, it would have basically said, if any of you had any kind of decency, you'd walk out of this place and let the people know above you that this isn't going to happen. We're not going to conduct our religious services like this. We're not going to follow all your rules and regulations that work for you, not the people. Are you all here? Okay, anyway. Just giving you something to think about. Alright, so he knows that the religious leaders that are coming to him are some of the worst offenders. And we've said this before. Alright, they were corrupt. And none of their acts of repentance would really have been genuine. Alright, he was, remember again, he was acquainted with the desert snakes who, though rather small in size, we said this before, they were very deceitful. Okay, they would stay motionless until you came very close and then boom, they would strike. And that's exactly how the religious leaders were. You think you were safe around them and they would strike. There goes your, your house. There goes your inheritance. 
Because they'll start putting the heavy on you. Now, do you love God or your parents more? You know, because if you love your parents more, well, there's no place for people like you in the kingdom of God who should be willing to give up everything. Of course, they won't give up everything. They want you to give up everything to them in the name of God. So they got it. And so he says here, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And this is where we left off. In other words, being fully aware that they had no real repentance and lacked the determination to abandon their evil ways, John asked the question, who deluded you to thinking that it was possible to escape God's divine judgment? Alright, so John's way of telling them that we all stand before God as individuals. And this is really important. To understand John's attitude towards them, besides everything that we've already looked at about the Pharisees and Sadducees, we need to know something else, okay? First, according to John MacArthur and the inferences from our previous studies, Pharisees and Sadducees had little in common. Can we take a minute here to go down this road? Okay. Pharisees were ritualists. They loved washing their hands and their balls and everything else. Okay, they just, everything was a ritual. Okay? <laughs> now, what's the differences, all right? So they were, they were ritualists. Sadducees were rationalists. They said, who cares about washing your hand every two seconds? Like you're going to find water every time you need to wash your hands because you touch something like, well, who cares? So there was always this thing that was going on between them. All right? And it's important because they're going to come together with all of these differences. So that's why we need to see what these differences are. Pharisees were legalists. Oh, they were about the law. Everything was about the law. Of course, they didn't follow any of it, but it was all about the law for everybody else. Remember how Jesus said you put bundles on people's back that even you can't carry? Alright? They expect people to do stuff that the law says, and the law was there to let people know they couldn't carry the bundle on their own. That they did have to look to God. That they did need a Savior. But instead of doing that, they took the law and said, you have to keep this law, and if you don't keep this law, then you're going to go to hell, basically. Alright, so, Pharisees were legalists, Sadducees were liberals. It didn't matter. Nobody's perfect. Do you understand? Liberals. It's okay, man. We understand. We did that last night ourselves. Pharisees were separatists. <laughs> okay? You understand separatists? They were the sort of people that said they want to separate themselves from sin and, you know, all the wrong things. That was where Pharisee came from. That was the name. Okay? And it was a time that people were doing all the wrong things. See? And a group of people stood up and said, you know what? We're not going to compromise anymore. We're going to stand separate from all the people that are compromising. We're going to stand for God. And you know, it's a funny thing. If you allow that to become a religion, then you end up exactly where you were trying to get away from. And they became their own worst advertisement of exactly what they stood for. Sadducees were compromisers and political opportunists. They were just, you know, it didn't matter. You know, yeah, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelette, you know what I mean? And so let's break a lot of eggs and kill the chicken along the way. It, it didn't matter with them. They just kind of whatever it takes to kiss whoever is whatever to get wherever. You can read into that what you want. Okay, so, right. it was political games with them. Yet they united in opposing Christ. Interesting, isn't it? 
uh, with all of their differences. Secondly, the reason that they would unite to oppose Christ is brought out in what William Hendrickson says. And that is despite their many differences, which we've seen now, basically many of these Pharisees and Sadducees were in perfect agreement. For in the final analysis, they both tried to attain security by their own efforts. Whether this security consisted in earthly possessions, on this side of the grave, that was with the Sadducees, okay? Many were rich landowners. Or on the other side of the grave, as with the Pharisees who were striving with all their might to work their way into heaven. Religion in both cases was outward. That's why when Jesus appeared on the scene, emphasizing a religion of the heart... And also God, as opposed to works, as the sole author of salvation, he was rejected by both groups. Amen? You getting this? Okay. In fact, Leon Morris goes on to say that they were united in their opposition to John and then to Jesus. Whatever differences they might have in other respects. Alright? So in one thing they could agree on. We both don't like John, we both don't like Jesus. Alright, regardless of everything else. Now Paul uses this one time when he gets hauled into court. You know, and he got the Sadducees on one side, Pharisees, he's a Pharisee, and he knows everything that everybody believes. And starts talking about the resurrection, and they break out in a fight. And he goes, yeah, there we go, leave it, walk off. Alright, because he knew that they had so many differing opinions, it was ridiculous. Alright, so he knew how to use that to his advantage. Getting back to this. William Hendrickson says that Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees because he denounced them since they cleansed only the outside of the cup. And by the Sadducees because by means of the temple cleansing he exposed their money-grabbing racket. On the whole, they were deceitful and hypocritical, and they considered his claim to pose a threat, especially to their own influential position. Did you get all of that? Okay. So on one hand, he exposes the Pharisees and says, you people are too focused on utensils and cleaning this and cleaning that. All right, And yet you are full of dead men's bones in you, just full of all kinds of iniquities and lawlessness. And and on the other hand, when he went and cleansed the temple twice, beginning and end of his ministry, he was was sending a clear message to the whole populace. This place is corrupt. These people are not doing what God has asked them to do. And that really reflected badly on the Sadducees. Alright, so, needless to say, that's the reason why they decided. Remember, they, they play political games. And from that viewpoint now, you can now understand, they basically ordered a hit on Jesus. <laughs> you getting what I'm saying? If we bring it down to today's you know, way of thinking, that's what would have happened. You know, there would have been a little money under the table, you know, and that would have been it. Hello? Are you with me? That's what they did. We're going to find out later on as we go through the life of Jesus, that they basically come together and decide we're going to kill him. So, of course, when they now turn up to John's baptism, so that's a little bit of a history and insight into them. So you can see now why John looks at them. You know, he wants to throw up. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Seriously. Okay? (laughs) So, (laughs) when they turn up to John's baptism, he knows that it's their own selfishness that has brought them there. It's not about repentance. It's about, and wait for it, let's impress the multitudes. Because if we can impress them, then we can keep a firm hold on them. 
See, this is the thing about people, you know? They sort of, you don't know what you got. They kind of shift from here to there. One minute in Jesus' ministry, bunches of them are following Him. Next minute, nobody. A lot of people think that Jesus' ministry was all, you know, all the time people were following Him. They weren't all the time following Him. And we're going to see why they followed Him when they followed Him. And why they stopped. Alright, all right, let's move on. Again, He knows that it's their own selfishness that has brought them there. Again, to impress the multitudes and keep firm hold on them. And why now he goes and says in verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Watch, watch what he says again. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Okay, watch the wording. Because a lot of people miss what they're saying here. Leon Morris points out, John is not inviting people to pile up good works. Right? He's not saying go do a bunch of good works. Okay, because they're good at that. They're good at showing stuff, you know, and saying, oh, look at what we're doing. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's looking for a change in their orientation of the whole of life that will result in fruitful living. Did you get that? So he wants their entire outlook on life to change. Their whole way of thinking, all their motivations, it all has to change. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? You can't be having this, we're playing games here and doing that, and who do we impress today, and none of that business. It's, it's a matter of, you've got to totally change that. You've got to turn away from all of that, and ask yourself one question, what does God want from me today? How can I serve the Lord? That's it. Not people, because you know, they can push you and make you do this and that and everything else. We're going to see instances like that when you know, people are saying, oh, come and do this for us. And Jesus is saying, no, I've got to go do what God asked me to do. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. It might be a little hard, and we're going to see the results of some of that as well. Boy, I have a lot of stuff to share with you when we get there. Okay, so, <clears throat> where are we? Okay, again... He's asking for a change in the orientation of the whole of life that will result in fruitful living. People must forsake evil ways and live rightly before God. Did you get that? Alright, they need to forsake their evil ways, they need to turn their back on it, and they need to live right before God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, His right way of doing things. Amen? And Jesus said, you do that and all the rest of the stuff that you're looking for, all the stuff the Sadducees, the Pharisees are trying to you know, accumulate, he said, all that stuff will be added to you. They're going about it the wrong way. Okay? That's why he keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. We did that in Sermon on the Mount. Okay. In other words, as William MacDonald puts it, they should show that they truly repented by manifesting a transformed life. Did you get that? Okay? I really like that. It was well said. Alright? You need to manifest a transformed life. That's bearing fruit. Okay? In fact, Jesus, in His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 17, 17 through 23, and He says, and let's read through this, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, that's very clear there. Alright, he didn't, and watch, let's go to the next verse. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So he's going, okay, if you see good fruit, there is some good in there. Something, it's coming from a good tree. Alright, if you see bad fruit, I don't care what the tree says, 
I'm giving something away now. Doesn't matter what the tree says, if you see bad fruit, it ain't a good tree. Okay. You'll understand what I mean in a minute. Every tree, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. You understand fire. Okay, alright. This is hell, alright. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, he doesn't stop there. Verse 21. Okay, that's the reason why you have to read the two together. You can't just leave it there. Alright. Verse 21, and we're over the page. Not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now see, a lot of people freak out right now. Okay? Because they go, oh no, I've called him Lord. I'm not going to make it? Wait, 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 go back. <laughs> go back. Remember he said, good, fruit, good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You know them by the fruit. Okay, you need to carry that. Don't, don't leave it there and walk off now and have a total brain switch. Carry that into this now, okay? Not everyone who says to me, what's the key word there? Says. Says. These people say we're righteous and we're Abraham's children and all this stuff. They say a lot of stuff. But watch what Jesus says. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Did you get that? I don't care what you say. What are you doing? Okay? Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Again, what's the key word? Say. People miss this every time. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Remember the seven sons of Sceva? They were from a priest's household. Do you understand? See, a lot of times you don't realize what they're on about. Are you all with me? And they will say all sorts of things. Notice again, they're saying that they're doing all these things. We don't even know if they did any of these things. Where are the people to say, yeah, I was there? A lot of people envision what they're saying as fact. Can I get you right now not to do that? You know how you get ripped off? By listening to a con artist talk. They will say a lot of stuff that maybe later on you find out none of it was true. And you got ripped off and you want to take it back to them and shove it down there. No, anyway. All right. <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? Because you know what? We listen. But what if you had knowledge? What if while they're talking, you are seeing what their life was like? And you're looking at what they're saying and what they've done. And they're two different things. Now let's go from there. So many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them. Watch the two things he says. Number one, I never knew you. Do you understand the context in which Jesus says, I never knew you? My sheep know my voice. He knows their voice. Who are you? I don't know you. You are not one of mine. Do you hear me? You see, Satan's people are trying to get in everywhere, in every way. They will lie, they will cheat, they will do whatever it takes to get in. 
They can fool us, but they can't fool God. Amen? So number one, he says, I never knew you. Let's take Jesus at his word rather than these people and what they said. Number two, he says, depart from me, you who practice casting out demons, praying in other tongues, prophesying in the Lord's name. No, he didn't say any of those things. What did he say? You who practice lawlessness, by their fruits you will know them. Do you understand practice lawlessness? Let me quickly share that out. Practice lawlessness means these people as a practice, as a way of life, do things that are ungodly. Do you hear me? Lawlessness is making reference to everything that is ungodly and apart from God's law. And he's saying, you people, you don't just make a mistake here and there and go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You don't, you know, once in a way you, you kind of go a little crazy and have too many drinks or whatever. And okay, party too much and whatever. And then you go, what did I do? That is your way of life. While other people have a bad day here and there, yours is 365 days a year. Are you getting this now? He says, you people don't know how to be honest. You don't know how to do the right thing. You are constant. If you open your mouth, you're lying. <laughs> okay, you know the guy, you know they say if his lips are moving, he's lying. You who practice lawlessness. Now you can understand why Jesus said, I never knew you. I don't care what you say to me. This might have worked at all the churches. It doesn't work here. In this final judgment, I know you. And you know what? You are not mine. Sayonara. Okay. <laughs> in other words, while these people said that they had, in essence, borne good fruit, in having done many wonders in His name, Jesus says that their actions, and therefore the actual fruit of their lives, prove otherwise. And why He says to them, Depart from Me, you, you, who practice lawlessness. I want to make those points because... We're dealing with people that John is, is dealing with very harshly right now. Okay? And we need to understand what is going on. What their lifestyle is like. And why he has such a disdain for them. In context, we find that Jesus was primarily making reference to the religious leaders of the time. Specifically the Pharisees and Sadducees. Which is exactly who John is giving this warning to. And not only that, but he goes in to say... In Matthew 3, 9. And do not think to yourselves. Watch now. He knows what they're thinking. Here we go. Okay, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you. We're going to see why they're saying that now. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. To understand why John said this. Robert H. Mounts points out that. The rabbis taught that Abraham was such an exceptionally good man that he had built up a treasury of merit that covered all the needs of his descendants. Did you get that? So, you know, our father Abraham, what he did is going to get us into heaven. It's not what we do, it's what he did. Hence we are his children, hence we're going in because of him. And therefore we can do whatever we want and still get in. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. Wrong. 
<laughs> That's the only problem with that. It all sounds good except it's wrong. Okay? <laughs> okay? And so, as Leon Morris puts it, to many Jews, it was unthinkable that the great patriarch's descendants should ever be excluded from God's blessing. That's why they kept throwing that in Jesus' face. But John tells them not to think like that. No place of privilege counts in the face of the demands of an all-holy and all-powerful God. Amen? So you can't come in saying, Yeah, I live like a turkey, you know, like the devil all week and my whole life, but Abraham... And you can just see Abraham going, that ain't one of mine. Might have come out from somewhere in the woodpile, but gee. (laughs) I don't know you. (laughs) See, this is what they never understood. That's why Jesus, now you can understand why Jesus said that they'll look up and they'll see Abraham and Isaac. See, that's what they wouldn't be able to reconcile in their mind. Hang on. If he's there, then we should be there regardless of what we did. But Jesus is saying, no, he's there because of what he did. You're here because of what you did. Added to this, John MacArthur points out that Abraham's true children are not merely physical descendants, but those who follow his faith, believing God's word the way he did. Amen? I've given you a reference there in Galatians 3.7. I actually want to... I've got a bit of verse 6 in there as well. Can you go down to the bottom of your page? See how it's in there? Can I just read that to you? Because I I thought it was important that we do that. In the same way, Abraham believed God. So God declared him righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are all those who put their faith in God. Those are the real children. Okay. Ultimately, the religious leaders' worst mistake was that they underestimated the power of God. And why John goes on to say that if God wanted to, he, just as he created Adam out of the dust of the ground, he could easily raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He's saying, you don't get what God can do. You don't have God over a barrel. Amen? You can't say, we are Abraham's descendants, blah, 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 you have to let us in. Sorry, that now is pretty much it. Okay, no other comments to make. <laughs> but this was not where the bad news ended. Because John goes on to say in Matthew 3.10, which is identical to Luke 3.9 by the way, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, meaning that they were all about to come under divine judgment because of their disobedience and rebellion. Therefore, every, every tree, every tree, okay, without exception, which does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's the fire of judgment and condemnation. Leon Morris writes, It is not easy to understand why the axe is pictured as laying at the root of the trees, but the root is that from which the tree draws its sustenance. Therefore, the picture suggests that not only will the tree be overthrown, but its source of nourishment will be taken away. There is no hope for such a tree. Remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree? It started where? At the roots. Okay, The thing actually started dying at the very source of life. So you, once that starts to go, the whole tree is dead. Forget about it. 
You're, you're here? Amen? Alright. And it will be obvious from the incidents recorded later on in the Gospels that neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees actually repented. Alright. Let's stop there because we're going into a new section or another little section here in, in what um, John is going to do. He's going to start preaching, teaching a little bit there and we'll take that up in the next session. Alright, take a break.